This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 12th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up, we have science writer Rachel Cernansky. She talks to me about progress on Africa's Great Green Wall Project and the important difference between planting a tree and growing a tree. Then I talk with researcher Václav Kuna about using loud, long songs from fin whales to image the crust under the ocean floor. Now we have science writer Rachel Cernansky with an update on Africa's Great Green Wall Project, which will soon see an infusion of billions of dollars from the World Bank and others. This project, the Great Green Wall, is intended to serve as a bulwark against desertification of the land south of the Sahara Desert, while at the same time supporting communities that live in this region. Okay, Rachel, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Sure. This is a great big wall. This is a big project. It's basically supposed to be this green band that spans about 7,000 kilometers across the whole top of Africa. It launched back in 2007. And Rachel, what would you say the progress has been since 2007 now to 2021? Almost non-existent, which is why they launched this new round of funding last month. There was an assessment that found that a fraction of the goal had been achieved so far. And the goal is for 2030. So they realized that time was running out. Right. Throughout this piece, you make this really important distinction between planting a tree and growing a tree. Why is that so important to think about when, you know, thinking about restoring lands or planting trees to help prevent desertification? The first time I heard it, I just thought, wow, that's a really good way to put it. And then one researcher after another would phrase it that way, that we don't plant trees, we grow them. 
Because that's been one of the key missing pieces in restoration efforts globally, not even specific to the Great Green Wall, but just in restoration landscape and forest restoration generally, there has been this focus on planting trees, but little focus really on looking at what gets planted in the first place and paying attention to the species and the diversity and the planting material and making sure that it's the right tree for the right place. There's also less follow-up, less maintenance of the tree than there needs to be. I talked to someone in West Africa who was saying that he's traveled to so many countries throughout the continent and he's seen so many trees planted, but where are the forests? Yeah, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Basically, tree planting mania that's been happening has come from all these different projects, foundations, quotas that are saying, oh, it costs a dollar to put a tree in the ground and we're going to offset our carbon. We're going to green the world. But no one's looking after these trees and making sure that they live beyond that first year, I guess. So now that we know that that's not a good way to go about this, there's actually a lot of research that's found some of the best practices for restoration projects. What are some of the recommendations that have come out from research in the past 10 years? One paper published last year talked about 10 golden rules for reforestation. And I think those summed up a lot of the recommendations really well, in addition to just protecting existing forests, which probably sounds obvious, but there's a lot of research coming out on that new forests don't have the same benefits that existing ones do, and it's hard to replace that. Beyond that, involving local communities has been just incredibly important component that researchers are saying was not really part of the focus before because the restoration ecologists are focused on the physical research and they aren't trained to think about how people play into the picture. And it's just so important to the survival of the trees because it's people who are planting the trees and it's people who are maintaining the trees. And if you don't have community buy-in and investment in why these trees are there, and interested in keeping them there, then the trees aren't going to last and the trees only have their benefits when they last. Going back to trees here for a minute, you mentioned keeping old forests in place or protecting them. What else is being looked at? So that's one, using a diversity of species so that there can start to be a restored biodiversity rather than just monoculture of trees. There's starting to be a focus now also on the quality of the seeds and what you're actually planting and how do we build the systems and infrastructure for collecting and improving seeds. Is it going to be the most resilient seed for that species? But then it's also about the genetic diversity because there can be inbreeding with plants. If you're not collecting from a wide enough geographic area, then you can start to sort of limit the gene pool and that can be problematic. You talk about this example in Ethiopia of a seed initiative, a network that is supposed to improve the quality of seeds. Can you talk about how that would work and how it would involve the community? The Provision of Adequate Tree Seed Portfolio, or PADSPO, is a project in Ethiopia that they're calling it a functional tree seed system. It's really a multi-pronged effort. They're trying to develop standards for seed collection, ensuring that there's high quality seed that will ensure that the trees that are planted can be their most resilient. They're developing maps for how to source those seeds. They're trying to strengthen the research 
system, the infrastructure and the, the research system to improve seed quality. And they're linking all of that to the people who will use the seeds. There's technical training for farmers in the local language, and there are diagrams of how to store different types of seeds. They're really trying to get that knowledge to the community, to farmers and local nurseries to scale up the capacity of local decentralized infrastructure. Is there another model project that people might be looking at to expand as the money comes in? Are there other areas that are doing good things? Yeah, there was one other project that I came across, the One Billion Trees for Africa project, and it's led by this man from Cameroon, Tabi Joda. He talked about how he grew up in this thriving ecosystem and he went off to university and when he came back, the land that he knew as a forest was no longer a forest. He started planting moringa trees and kola nut trees and mango trees and all these different trees that would restore some of the soil health that he saw had been lost, but also produce food and income generating opportunities for people so that they would be invested in keeping the trees there. He called his approach the contagion approach because it's just sort of caught on. He got a bunch of men and women in this one community to be involved in the tree planting. And then the neighboring community saw what was happening. And he was very clear that it's not like a drastic change where their community is suddenly rich where they weren't before, but the small benefits were noticeable. And so the neighboring community wanted to do something similar. And so it's just been a word of mouth approach. So as he's developed this very grassroots success, he's gotten funding from more international sources to then use it to do the work on the ground in, in these different communities, mostly in West Africa. And he's starting to do more and more with the Great Green Wall, which seems very exciting. So there are a couple different findings that we talked about that suggest the way forward for this type of restoration project involving the community, diversity of what they're planting, making sure that they're not just putting stuff in the ground, but they're actually supporting plant growth and the communities around it. But another thing that comes up a lot in your story is now we kind of know what should happen. Researchers have come to a lot of conclusions that are very useful, but then there's the practice, what's actually been happening on the ground and maybe even what will happen on the ground. What are some of the biggest impediments to implementing the results of this research? One interesting comment that I heard was that the implementing partners, the people with the money, don't have scientists on their teams. They don't realize how complicated it is to plant a tree and to get it right and to make sure that it grows. The lack of knowledge in the right places and the lack of communication between the people with the money and the people with the knowledge and also the community who is going to be involved. Those conversations aren't being had. Something else that I hear is the expectations that donors have. They want fast results and that's not how trees in general work, but it's especially not how effective restoration works because all of these things need to happen and they take time getting communities involved. There's a lot of upfront investment that needs to happen in developing all of this infrastructure and research systems. It's a lot faster to just go and say, just plant a bunch of eucalyptus trees because that's what they have the seeds and the planting materials for. There's a disconnect between the speed that donors want to see results and the reality of what needs to happen. 
I've seen that you've written about this project for years now. What do you think you're going to see if you check back in in two years? I hope to see that things like the Patsbo project and this other effort, the One Billion Trees for Africa, I hope that they have scaled and and that they inspire or serve as models for other projects. I don't know where I'm placing my bets, but it feels like there is enough of a resounding message coming from the research community about the importance of this and the importance for the effective ecosystem function restoration and the community development, but also for the climate benefits. And if the global funders and governments who want to plant trees for the climate benefits, if they are serious, then they will start listening to these researchers. This is like thousands of miles, like 4,000 miles. It's like the U.S. plus another third, right? East to West, a huge, huge area to cover. And it crosses countries and all these different peoples. Like, how is this possible, Rachel? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is a global scale. This is a huge project. It's huge. It's huge. And that's probably why it sounded like this great, idea when they announced it and why it didn't go anywhere for 10 years. (laughs) But the partner agencies that I've spoken with involved in this project, the Great Green Wall, are really clear that it's an environmental program, but it's also a social one. It's one that's meant to, to stimulate economic development, but also really impart some resiliency into these communities who are the most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. That's why they're really ramping up this funding now, because they see the value for the planet from a climate change perspective, but also for the millions of people across this gigantic area. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Sure. Rachel Sardansky is a science writer based in Denver. You can find a link to this story on the episode page for the podcast at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Václav Kuna about using whale songs to probe the structure of the oceanic crust. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Whales make very loud, long sounds, and the loudest is the fin whale. Researchers have now shown that these whale calls can be used to probe the structure of the crust under the ocean floor. Václav Kuna, a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute of Geophysics in Prague, is here to talk about how they figured this out. Hi, Václav. Hello. How did anyone think to ask this question that a whale call might be used for imaging underneath the surface of the ocean floor? Actually, I haven't really asked this question first because I was working on oceanic earthquakes or earthquakes underneath the bottom of the ocean on the Blanco Fracture Zone near the coast of Oregon. So I was processing all the seismic data from ocean bottom seismic stations, and I noticed that there are some strange signals that I didn't know what they are. And I found out that those are fin whale recordings. 
And because I'm seismologist and I always look at sounds from the seismological perspective, and I've worked before in reflection seismics, I was wondering, because the sounds, the whale vocalizations are very loud. So I was wondering whether there could be some reflected or refracted phases as we use in a reflection seismology. Very cool. Okay, let's listen to a fin whale call here. That's actually sped up 10 times, too. It's long and slow. I kind of hear, like, pulses. That's right. Those are, in origin, if it wasn't sped up, those would be, like, one-second chirps or a little bit shorter than one second. And the reason why it's sped up is because those finwell calls are relatively low in frequency. So they are at about 20 hertz, and it's underneath what we can hear, actually, with our ears or, like, on the very bottom of that. And also what's interesting about this particular recording is that this is a recording as it was recorded in our stations in the ocean. And after that initial chirp, you can hear the echoes. And those echoes are the important things for my research because those echoes are mostly in the ocean, but also actually reflected from the interfaces beneath the ocean bottom. Let's play it again so people can listen for that. And it's so different than what I think of as a whale call, you know, your classic, weird, sing-songy humpback song. Let's play a little sample of that. With this idea that you could see these reflections, some of them coming from underneath the ocean floor, how did you test that the imaging was accurate? So the way we do this in reflection seismology commonly is that we have a receiver. In our case, it's the ocean bottom seismic station, and we have a source of the mechanical wave. In this case, it's the whale that gives us the pulse or the mechanical wave source. And as the whale comes towards the station and it calls, it produces these vocalizations. It comes towards the station and then swims away from the station. We record hundreds and hundreds of these calls. And then based on the time arrival of those phases, we can infer where they are coming from. So if it's a phase that's entirely traveling through the water column, it travels with some defined speed, approximately 1.5 kilometers per second. But if it's traveling through the crust, it travels faster. In the oceanic sediment, it travels at about 2 kilometers per second speed. If it travels through the basaltic basement, it travels even faster. We know how far the whale is from the station because we can calculate that. And based on how long it takes to these phases to travel to the station, we can infer on where where the signal is going through. When you compared an analysis of the whale song reflections with a more typical approach to measuring or imaging, you saw that they matched up? 
That's right, more or less, because we don't have at this particular place where we had the stations at the, at the bunker fracture zone, we did not have this active source experiment. So we were comparing our results with an active source experiment. Active source, I mean, it's called air gun. It's like a big air gun that produces these big shocks in the water. So we have one of those experiments about 200 kilometers north of our site. So we compared our results with that. And they do not match exactly, but they are pretty similar. And also, it's actually quite typical how ocean explorer looks like. There's always, or almost always, there is a layer of oceanic sediment that is very unconsolidated. And the speed of the mechanical wave is quite slow in there. And then there is some basaltic basement. So we know what the archetypal structure of oceanic crust looks like. And we kind of compare it both to the active source experiment north of the site and to this archetypal structure of the oceanic crust. When I was reading the paper, the tricky part really seemed to be knowing where the whales are. They're moving around. These songs last hours and you kind of have to figure that out as you're you know, using the waves to do this imaging. But the fact that they move around is actually an advantage. It means that this type of imaging can be done anywhere that these whales hang out and there's a station to record their songs. Yes, that's right. As you are saying, it has its own challenges comparing to the active source because initially we do not know where the whale is and we need to first, we need to locate the whale. And the technique we use, we use only one station to locate the whale and we use a difference between the wave that travels straight from the whale to the station and a wave that travels down to the ocean bottom that bounces back up on the ocean surface and then bounces to the station. So we use this differential time to locate the whale and it's challenging and there's definitely some kind of errors associated with that. But as you are saying, the advantage of this method is that we can actually use it anywhere where we have ocean bottom seismic stations and where there are whales. And fin whales are relatively globally spread. So we can potentially do this analysis in many parts of the world. Then you kind of have this like, mobile sound source for visualizing, you know, the crust. Yes, that's right. It cannot really replace active source experiments, those big air guns, because those are much more energies in them and the, they have broader frequency content. But we do have this source, which we can utilize, I think, in many parts of the world for imaging. Are there some advantages to using whale song instead of an air gun? For sure. I mean, it's for free. <laughs> yeah, Once you have ocean bottom seismic station somewhere, and you can do it as an additional analysis. I do not think that it would be right now at this point really worth deploying ocean bottom seismic stations primarily for imaging of oceanic crust from whale songs. I think there is still a lot of analysis to be done. But I think this is seismology always tries to broaden the range of available sources. We use earthquakes, we use ambient noise, we use all kinds of sources of mechanical waves because it's always those mechanical waves also carry some information about the environment where they spread about the source itself and we are just trying to broaden the range of, of the sources that we can use for our analyses and and fin whales and maybe also other whales i don't think it's impossible to like utilize them for certain purposes and and this is just another potential source that i'm showing that we can use for imaging wonderful thank you so much Václav. Thank you. Václav Kuna is a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute of Geophysics in Prague. You can find a link to his paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, 
write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The show is edited and produced by Sarah Crespi, with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.